welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Good evening, everyone, or good day, or whatever your home language is. Um, who am I? My name's David Catchpool, and I uh, used to be an atheist, but that's not uh, my position at the moment. I'm now one of these fundamentalist young earth creationists that the media so like to disparage. And uh, I've, my full-time job, I get paid to do this, can you believe it, is with Creation Ministries International. But uh, I don't want to talk too much about myself or the ministry I work for. Basically, it's what we do that's important. We're here to help the believers, the Christians, those who are brave enough to declare Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. We're here to help people to rebut the lies, basically, that are being taught to uh, every age group in our society today uh, via uh, headlines like these. As he pushes the right button... Does anything happen? It's supposed to jump. Okay, we'll go backwards. There we are. Got it. Yeah, this is the sort of thing I grew up with. These days, of course, you've got uh, stuff online. But the message uh, is basically the same as it was when I was growing up, that everything just evolved by itself over millions and billions of years. And the first time I met a Christian was uh, when I went to uni. I grew up here in Adelaide and uh, in an unchurched household. So uh, I was taught evolution's true. I was an atheist. Finally got to uni and that's where I, I met a first, uh, the first time I ever met a real live Christian who was prepared to talk about Jesus. But it cut no ice with me because as I said to the uh, Christians, look, if you can't trust the first few pages of the Bible, how can you trust any of it? Because they came from a fairly liberal church that didn't believe Genesis' actual history. They held on to Jesus, but when it came to the Old Testament, they were just told it's a book of yarns. And so they had no answers. Well, tonight I'm going to show that there are answers. Uh, basically, our charter is to help Christians fulfill the, the first commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart soul, mind and strength. And our ministry is basically an information ministry. You probably haven't encountered any of our books uh, or any creation books as you went through school. The evolutionary bombardment is everywhere. But tonight, those of you who can afford to, uh, I hope you can uh, redress it. We've got a book table uh, outside the door there, groaning under the weight of the books. It's amazing what's happened in 40 years. 40, 50 years ago, there was just one book uh, but now there's so many books we can't even bring them all out on ministry. But basically the function of those books is to help Christians do what the Apostle Paul uh, said that he did and we can follow his lead. We're here to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Pretension, what does that mean? I looked up in the dictionary what pretension meant and uh, the dictionary definition is that it's an assertion of a claim. And I reckon that's what evolution is. In fact, I reckon evolution is a myth. You look up the dictionary definition of what a myth is and we see that it says... Is there any reason why this is delay? Okay, go backwards. 
Uh, it's a fictitious tale imaginatively describing natural phenomena. And so tonight, those of you who are familiar with the TV format of Mythbusters, uh, that's what I want uh, us to do. Let's demolish arguments, bust arguments, and every pretension, every myth that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Um, lots of books on the table that we've got help you to do that. Books are great, but don't buy the book and just keep it on the bookshelf. You need a reminder, and so we've got Creation Magazine, which comes out uh, four times a year, and uh, so at the end of the second session, because we'll have two half-hour sessions, I'll be appealing to those of you who can afford it, join us in the work and sign up and get the word out, because let's face it, unless we as Christians speak up, who else are the unbelievers going to hear it from? They're certainly not going to get it from the, uh, the newspapers, the National Geographic uh, programs, uh, Sky Channel and so on. And they're certainly not going to get it from the likes of Richard Dawkins, who writes books like The God Delusion, which comes straight out of an evolutionary framework of thinking. God is just a figment of the imagination. Look on our website if you're looking for rebuttals to the likes of Richard Dawkins, you can find articles like this one that rebut material in The God Delusion. And in fact, the website is an amazing thing. We can now get stuff up on the website in response to evolutionist claims uh, within 24 hours. Um, so it's actually a quicker cycle than going through books or, or Creation Magazine. And because you can email a link out to people, um, there's no cost to it. You don't have to find an envelope and put in and find a stamp and so on and send it. Just send out the word that there's a website, creation.com, which uh, rebuts the sort of bombardment that we're getting, even in films like uh, Avatar. Um, you know, the website is not just highbrow science. It's, it addresses the culture where we're at, because Avatar just bombarded people with uh, evolutionary indoctrination. We run an email news service. We call it Infobytes, and... Um, if uh, you don't already subscribe to Infobytes, we're going to give you that opportunity now at the same time as I'll introduce our volunteers. I get paid to do this. I landed Adelaide Airport just a couple of hours ago, but these guys live here and they've come out tonight because they know the power of getting this information into the hands of the soldiers for Christ. So I'll ask them to come to front and turn around, give a big smile, Take note of who they are, because if you buy stuff later, these are the guys who can help you. They actually know more about what's on the tables than I do. And uh, each of them have got stories about how they are at the front lines and uh, fighting back on this issue. The form they're about to hand out, thanks guys, looks like this. If you can remember your email address, here's your chance to sign up, and it's completely free. Creation Magazine lady you'll have to pay for, but this one, email news, completely free. If you can remember your address, uh, just jot it down there and uh, it's all systems go. By the way, those of you who've been checking our website will know that this year we've um, published a, uh, a rebuttal to Richard Dawkins' latest book, which is uh, he called Evolution, The Greatest Show on Earth. Our book is called Evolution, The Greatest Hoax on Earth. Uh, and thanks to the Christians buying this book, it's now into, well into its uh, second printing. So uh, that's available out there too. Okay, to uh, go through just some examples. I haven't got time to go through all the information that, that's on the tables. That's why we uh, bring um, these resources out to these meetings. But uh, if we have a look at uh, this claim that we see evolution happening today, and we're going to have a little bit of a genetics lecture. We'll try and keep it simple. Um, but basically, 
if we've got, uh, we'll look at dogs. Because, you know, if we as Christians believe the Bible, all the dogs we see in the world today, big dogs, little dogs, hairy dogs, not so hairy dogs, they're all descended from two dogs on board the ark. So how can that be? I mean, are we seeing evolution happening? Are we seeing changes in living things? We are seeing changes in living things, but it's not the evolution that the evolutionists claim turned microbes into man. We're not seeing evolution at all. Let's have a look at the changes we are seeing. Here we've got two dogs that have medium length hair. So each dog will carry two genes that code for hair length. In this case, here's a female dog that has a short hair gene and a long hair gene. She got one from dad, one from mum together express themselves as medium length hair. Now if we cross these two dogs, a male and a female, what combinations will we get in the offspring? Because each dog will inherit one gene that codes for hair length from dad and one gene that codes for hair length from mum. Well, we see here, here, okay, um, when we cross the two dogs together, the combinations we get in the offspring are, in this case, this dog has inherited the short hair gene from dad and the short hair gene from mum. Result, short hair. Uh, this, these two dogs are just like mum and dad, chips off the old block, because they've inherited a short hair gene from dad or mum and a long hair gene from the other parent, just like mum and dad. But what would we get if one of the dogs had inherited the long hair gene from dad and the long hair gene from mum? Long hair. Exactly right. Long hair. Come on, there it is. Okay. Um, now, if we were just looking on the outside of things, we would say, oh dear, looks like evolution is true because we didn't have short haired dogs in the parents' generation. We didn't have long haired dogs in the parents' generation. We've got changes happening right in front of our eyes. But no, when we look at the genetics, we see that there's no new information here. The information for short hair was, is on the short hair gene, which was already parent, present in the parent's generation. And similarly, the long-haired dog has information for long hair, which comes from the long hair gene. That too was present in the parent's generation. So we're not seeing the sort of changes that will turn microbes to man. That needs an increase in information. There's no new information here. And so be alert when you hear uh, some, press re um, some research announcement from university. They say, oh, look, we see evolution happening in the lab. They're the sort of changes they're talking about. Unfortunately, the public tend to hear it as evidence for microbes to man evolution, but that's not what they're observing. Now, I've just given a very brief overview there. If you want more detailed information, you can actually find that little genetics segment I've given you in um, our books. This one's called Refuting Evolution. We don't use those comical diagrams of dogs because we want you to be able to lend or give the book to somebody without them saying, oh, this is for kids. A university person would understand that these diagrams here uh, just like the ones they've got in their own textbooks with uh, the codes for long hair and short hair gene. And they, they'll see that uh, there's no increase in information. You know, today in Australia, you hear news reports all the time about biologists studying things like the impact of the cane toads. Here you've got a uh, cane toad in the mouth of this red-bellied black snake, died immediately because of the poison gland in the uh, toad's back. Uh, here's another example. It's a death adder 
killed by a cane toad. And so when you look at how the evolutionary researchers are reporting this, uh, Professor Richard Shine from uh, the University of Sydney, um, he's, he actually works in the Department of Evolutionary Biology. They even changed the names of these departments to reflect their views of origins. But let's have a look at his words. He says, the right shape to be if you're a snake when the toads arrive is to be a big snake with a small head. You know why? Because if you've got a small head, you can't get your head around a cane toad, therefore you don't get killed by them. Uh, but look at his wording. He says, that's exactly the, what's that word there? Evolutionary change, but it's not an evolutionary change because there's no new information. Basically what's happening is natural selection is removing snakes that have big heads. And you know, when you read the fine print of their own articles, this is from uh, his website, and the title says, Evolution Caused by Cane Toads, and you know, here's your evolutionary spin, but you read down further in the fine print, the arrival of toads, what's this word here? removes some genetic traits from the predator population. So we're seeing a loss of information, in fact, not a gain of information. Let's go back to our uh, dog examples and we see that natural selection actually reduces uh, information in this example where we get our dogs, some with long hair, some with medium hair, some with short hair, and we'll send them off to a very cold place, say Antarctica. Now, what's natural selection going to do? It's going to remove, that's what these X's mean, it's going to remove from the population any dog that does not have long hair. And so all we're left with is long-haired dogs. Now, when the survivors reproduce, what combinations will we get in the offspring? We see that every single dog is going to be a long-haired dog. Uh, because there's no short-haired gene left in the population. So that's the only possible combination there is. Um, and so we see that our population of dogs has actually lost information. Uh, no longer can these dogs produce um, uh, short-haired or medium-length hair dogs. And so we see that uh, this is not evolution but just the opposite. So someone might come along and give them a new species name because they'll say that these dogs aren't reproducing with other dogs. We can give them a new species name. They're reproductively isolated. They'll say this population is well adapted to its new environment. So speciation, adaptation, natural selection, yeah, we've got no problem with that. But is it evolution? No, it's not. Now, notice here, natural selection has removed some of our dogs. It's a harsh world, isn't it? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Death is a natural part of life. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't say that death is a natural part of life. Yes, it's around today, but according to the Bible, death is an enemy. And those of you who recently have been to the funeral of a loved one, you will know that uh, as you're sitting there, something was wrong. In your heart of hearts, you'll know that something's not right. That's because death is an enemy, just as the Bible says. And it's the only Origins version doing the rounds that calls a spade a spade. The Quran doesn't. The Quran says death's a natural part of life. Evolution says death's a natural part of life. Hinduism, Buddhism says death's a natural part of life. Isn't it interesting that you've got all these other ideas all lining up against Christianity? As Jesus said, you're either for or against now, I need to take some time out here to talk about an idea that's doing the rounds in the Bible colleges, many Bible colleges. There's a few exceptions, but 
generally speaking, there are many pastoral graduates these days who were taught at Bible college that there are many views of Genesis, so you know, don't get too dogmatic about the age of the earth and the six-day creation and so on. Uh, can all these different views doing the rounds uh, be correct? Because there are many ideas, theistic evolution, uh, the days of creation were long periods of time, God created progressively, there's millions of years between Genesis verse 1 and verse 2, gap theory, framework hypothesis. Look, without going into details, all of those ideas and all of the ideas that try to entertain uh, that God needed millions of years fail. Let's have a look at where they fail. Uh, just, just one key point on where they fail. It's to do with the fossils. You see, <coughs> sorry, the millions of years come from the evolutionary interpretation of the fossil record. And so if, as Christians, uh, we take what the scientists are telling us, that uh, the earth is millions of years old, the fossils are millions of years old, um, what that means is that uh, when our Bible college teachers or our pastors uh, accept uh, that the, the millions of years, uh, what they're doing is they're basically saying that God was a liar. You see, at the end of day six, uh, God looked at all he had made and declared it very good. Now, when you have a look at Jesus' words, for example, he said, <clears throat> at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Um, certainly not uh, billions of years after some big bang beginning. So Jesus believed that male and female were around from the very uh, beginning. So, you know, you've got problems with millions of years there. Similarly, here we've got the Garden of Eden. Um, what did God say? He declared all he had made at the end of day six was very good. But what we've got our Garden of Eden built upon, if we accept the millions of years of the fossil record, is our Garden of Eden, underneath it, it looks like this. You've got fossils everywhere. Now, to get a fossil, something has to die. So you've got death and uh, suffering, one animal eating another, bloodshed, disease, uh, all before um, Adam sinned. A major problem. You've got death, an enemy, before Adam sinned. Now, how do we, as Christians, understand death? Well, the meaning of anything depends on its origins. And so if we go back into the Bible, when was the first time that that concept of death was discussed? We see... In Genesis chapter 2, God said to the man Adam, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely... It's gone. Where is it? There's supposed to be the word die there. Yes, you will surely die. Um, that's what it says. It's, it's, right, it's right there in the Bible. So... Uh, what happened? Adam and Eve uh, did indeed uh, take the fruit. And what happened? Okay. They both knew that something was very wrong. So they sewed together fig leaves to make coverings for themselves as if trying to cover their own sin, which of course we can't do. What did God do? We read that he made garments out of skins for Adam and Eve and clothed them. 
Okay. Um, now that's a very interesting thing to do, isn't it? Why did God do that? Because they'd already clothed themselves, already covered themselves. Well, as we read in Hebrews 9.22, which uh, cites Leviticus, we see in the sight of a holy God, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So we see here that to get hold of skins, God had to kill an animal, at least one. Here's why. It was the first blood sacrifice as a covering for sin. Now, as we read on in the Bible, we see that there were many other sacrifices again and again blood uh, sin offering as a covering for uh, human sin blood sacrifice why did it have to be done over and over and over again well as we read in hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 ultimately it's impossible for the blood of an animal to completely atone for human sin and you know the meaning of anything depends on its origins that makes sense unlike the animals we were made in god's image no wonder an animal can't completely atone for human sin. And so we need someone who is fully human to die in our place. But guess what? I can't die for you and you can't die for me because uh, we're all sinners and the wages of sin is death. It's enough for each of us to die for our own sin. Um, as uh, Psalm 49 verses 7 to 9 make clear, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The cost is too great. And so we are in a mess. We, mankind, are in a mess. Unless someone could be found who is fully human as we are, a descendant of the first man, Adam, and yet who is without sin. By definition, there's only one that can be, the creator himself. The one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul clearly believed that Genesis was straightforward history. As he says here, sin entered the world through one man. In this way, death came to all of us. Um, just as uh, death reigned because of the trespass of, of the one man, again and again in uh, his letters, he refers to the fact that Genesis is straightforward history. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, I went too far. Let's go back one. Okay. Since uh, death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. See how he's tied the gospel of Jesus Christ with actual history, what happened in the Garden of Eden and, and in uh, the ensuing events. Here's the bad news. In Adam, we all die. There's the bad news. In Christ, all who believe shall be made alive. This is a key verse, I believe, for evangelism in the 21st century. From personal experience, I know, having been taught evolution through school, then meeting a Christian at first year uni, then telling me about Jesus, not being able to answer my challenges about evolution. You see, their offer of the good news of Jesus Christ made no sense. We've had millions of years of death and suffering and we're looking forward to millions of years more of death and suffering. Why did some codger die on a cross 2,000 years ago? But if they'd been able to tell me the bad news in Adam all die and they'd have been able to tell me about my grandmother's funeral, sorry, my grandfather's funeral, I'd have known in my heart of hearts, yeah, death is an enemy. See, go back to the beginning. Don't be ashamed 
of what God has said about what really happened in the past because it's through knowing what really happened in the past that you can believe what really happened in the past 2,000 years ago, that we needed a saviour who was our creator to die on the cross. The the, uh, Apostle Paul talks about the first Adam in the same breath as he talks about the last Adam. Why do we need a last Adam? Because of what the first Adam did. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, all who believe shall be made alive. You see, this world we've got today is no longer a very good world. It's a world in bondage to decay. It's a world God made but changed because of sin. And thankfully, there are more changes to come. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. And we see in Revelation 21 verse 4, just in case you read through the Bible and missed those key events that happened in the beginning, we see that there'll be no more death, no more crying, and we get access again to the tree of life. There'll be no more, what's this word here? Curse. No more curse. In other words, this is a world that has been changed because of sin. It's a world in bondage to decay, a world groaning. Yes, that's exactly what you see. And you know what? You can use this in your witnessing because you can point to the reality of more babies being born with genetic deformities than at any time in history. And the evolutionists can't answer it. The geneticists talk about the genetic burden and the evolutionary... uh, sorry, the genetic burden and the genetic load, the mutational load that's building up generation by generation. One of our longest-lived witnessing products started out life as a video. We still sell it as a DVD. It's called From a Frog to a Prince. You can can see the title is a parody of evolutionary belief that some amphibian came out of the water and today, what's the pinnacle of evolution? Prince Charles. Okay. Now, one reason we still sell this DVD is because of the very powerful testimonies we get back from people, uh, because this DVD we've been promoting is something you can show in your living room to someone who's only getting one side of the story from their secular school and TV and so on. This way, you can hear PhD scientists who believe evolution interviewed alongside PhD scientists who believe creation. At least here you get both sides of the story, you can make up your own mind. And the testimonies we get back from people point to uh, a pivotal moment on the DVD Uh, as being influential in their conversion. It's when Professor Richard Dawkins, no less, is asked this key question. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Now, we're going to show that that, uh, a little extract from that DVD now. Um, If you... uh, I, I trust we've got the audio working, but if you can't hear the audio, the interviewer is basically asking this question here. What I want you to note is Richard Dawkins' response. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Now, that was just 12 seconds of silence. 
he was actually silent for a full two minutes. Uh, um, yeah, two minutes. We don't show the full two minutes on the DVD. It gets embarrassing showing this in public fora. At the end of two minutes, he asked the cameraman to turn off the camera. He wanted permission for time to think. Permission granted. Does he answer the question when he comes back on? Suffice to say, the testimonies we've got back from people who are now Christians through having watched this DVD is that blind Freddie can see Richard Dawkins doesn't answer the question. And nor has he answered since, nor has anyone else answered since. In fact, Dawkins has tried to put a positive spin on it uh, since. Um, this is one comment he's come out with since we interviewed him. He says, of course evolution's been observed. It's just that it hasn't been observed while it's happening. <laughs> so, this claim that we see uh, evolution happening today is a myth. And the myth is, I need help here, one, two, three, busted. One of the comebacks that people who believe evolution might say next is, okay, we might not see evolution happening at the moment, but look, it must have happened in the past. Look at the fossil record. Now, if we look at the fossil record, um, this has been split here so that we can get a better view of it, but basically, this is the top bit, here's the bottom bit, here they talk about the Precambrian and the Cambrian, things that crawl around on the seabed, evolve first, come up a bit higher. You find uh, the sharks, then the fish, the amphibians, uh, then the, uh, as, as life evolved on, on the earth, the age of dinosaurs, and then finally uh, the mammals. Now, um, I'm going to be fair here. I'm going to try and adopt the Mythbusters format on TV. One might almost say... That, that's a very clever story. It's, uh, and you, to use the terminology of Mythbusters, plausible. Could be plausible. But, but, let's dig deeper. And just, uh, I have to choose specific examples, okay? I could present much, many more uh, quotes like this one. This is from an evolutionist uh, 30 years ago, and it's still the same today. He says, the fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. Many more quotes I could present uh, with other evolutionists echoing that. So, sure enough, when you look in the fossil record, uh, you don't see the transitional forms. You might hear about them uh, from time to time, given front page, page uh, headlines in newspapers and so on. But what you don't see happening in the days and weeks after that is their own evolutionary colleagues will uh, say, hey, this doesn't fit with uh, the evolutionary tree, you can't claim it as being our ancestor, and so on. But generally that doesn't make the front page of the newspapers. You've got to wade through the scientific literature to find those things. And that's one of uh, the function of Creation Ministries International, why they employ PhD nerds like me, so that we're not intimidated by what uh, so-called scientists say. Because science is all about making observations and reporting them and having it open to uh, review by others. And in the media, they'll often just take the conclusions. You've got to go to the scientific journal to see the materials and methods or the actual observations, the actual results, and then you can see that it doesn't match up with their conclusions. So how is it that science could be wrong? A lot of people might be thinking, now wait on, science has given us so many good things like electricity and rapid transport, communications and so on. 
Ah, yes. But that comes from what we would categorize as operational science or experimental science in the present. People are using their own eyes to make observations. They're doing experiments in their labs. But when you hear claims about uh, some organism evolving legs to move from the ocean onto the land millions of years ago, I tell you now, that wasn't the result of something done in the lab today. It's surmise. It's what we might call historical science or forensic science. There it is. Um, Basically, the fossil is real. By the way, when do fossils exist? Fossils exist in the present. See, he's, he's in the present. He's holding the fossil in the present. Now, that thing that died to form the fossil um, lived in the past. But the fossil is in the present. But this uh, imagination here is about the past. But did he do an experiment to determine how long ago life supposedly evolved from sea creatures and turned into land creatures? No, you can't do that. You can't go back into the past. None of us can go back into the past. And so next time you hear announcements from the scientific community, can you mentally separate out, even from within the, the one report, what is on the basis of what they observe with their own eyes versus what is surmise about what they think happened in the past? Ultimately, there's only one way that you and I can know what happened in the past. And that's via an eyewitness account. You know, I like to call the Bible the manufacturer's instructions. And there's a key instruction here which is terrific for servicing our thinking. You know, you want to get a car serviced, you take it to someone who adheres to the manufacturer's instructions, don't you? If you don't, well, all sorts of things could go wrong. And this was a key key instruction from our manufacturer in Deuteronomy 19.15 and repeated in 2 Corinthians 13.1, we are to let every matter be established on the testimony of two or more eyewitnesses. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's the only way we can know what happened in the past. You see, you can't use the scientific method to determine whether the Second World War was a real event and the date it started and the date it finished. You need eyewitness accounts. And... The Bible tells us what happened in the past. It's a history book of the universe, basically. (coughs) You know, the only reason I can know my birth date, because I can't remember being born, the only reason I know is because I've got a birth certificate which has been signed by two witnesses, midwife and my mother. Uh, She was there, she ought to know, she said. In the Bible, we've got the birth certificate of the universe. And so how do we as Christians uh, answer um, the presence of fossils down in the rock layers, evidence of death, suffering, disease? Well, it can't be before Adam, as we've seen. So it must have been after Adam. So is there some event that might explain it? You bet. (coughs) Sorry. Genesis chapters 6 through to 9 talks about a global flood, colossal flood. The mountains, the highest mountains were covered. This was an earth-covering flood. Where'd the water come from? Well, you've probably heard of the uh, 40 days and nights of rain, but in Genesis 7-11, it's actually mentioned as the secondary source of water, the primary source, the fountains of the great deep breaking open. Now today, when we see rushing water at a local level, it can be enormously damaging. It can pick up houses and cars, bury them under layers of mud, Now, 
If that gives us an insight into what was happening all over the world at the time of the flood, surely today we'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And you know, that is exactly what we find. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Many of them beautifully preserved. It doesn't fit with the textbook. You know, if you, those of you doing upper high school biology or, or at, at university geology, you would see in the textbooks there, a fish lives and dies, sinks to the bottom, slowly gets covered over and fossilized. Uh-uh, doesn't work like that. When I went spearfishing with my dad, hundreds of hours every Adelaide summer, on York Peninsula, we never saw lots of dead fish lying on the bottom waiting to be slowly covered over and fossilised. If a fish does die, it floats to the top, as people who have aquarium fish tell me. And you've got scavengers ripping them apart. If there are any bits and pieces that eventually do fall to the bottom, you've got crabs and prawns and so on waiting for them to rip them apart. How come they didn't rip this apart? It testifies to being buried in an unusual event. Uh, here's another example. It's a salamander. So beautifully preserved, you can still see the folds in its tail and its beautifully delicate, fine gill structure. This next fossil is my favourite. It's a fish that got covered over so quickly, didn't even have a chance to finish swallowing its lunch. (laughs) Now, if you look at film footage of a fish swallowing another fish, it happens so quickly. To see that picture there, you've got to slow it down frame by frame. You know, in Creation Magazine, we're careful every issue to have some sort of rapid fossilisation example. Um, or evidence of a global flood. Uh, This is from an article a couple of years ago. Polystrate fossils, tree trunks buried through layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. You think about the slow and gradual model. Tree, if a tree is going to be fossilised, starts getting buried, hang on a minute, by the time the bottom bit starts to get buried, the top would be rotting away. Um, And also this very interesting thing with these polystrate fossils, fossil tree trunks, no roots. No roots. In other words, these trees weren't buried where they grew. They've been ripped out by some cataclysmic event, carried long distances, and then as one end became waterlogged in the year-long flood and began to sink, guess what? Buried upon layer upon layer upon layer happened in the global flood. That testifies you need a catastrophe to explain these things. And in fact, the geologists are starting to embrace the idea of catastrophism. But... They don't want one catastrophe because one catastrophe might speak too closely about the global flood of Noah's day. Do you know on Mars, they've actually identified periods on Mars and one of them they call the Noahic period because it was covered with a global flood. Do you know how much water they've found on, liquid water they've found on Mars? Not one single drop. Yet they're quite happy to entertain a global flood on Mars. Yet on Earth, two-thirds covered with water. No, not enough water. Do you know if... Do you know if you were to flatten out the earth like a ping pong ball, there's enough water on this planet to cover, cover it to a depth of two or three kilometres. Plenty of water, stacks of water. Um, and the, the evidence testifies to rapid burial in the past by a global event. You can go all over the world and find fossils like uh, at Fossil Bluff, northwest Tasmania. I've walked along there at low tide. There are marine fossils jutting out of the the layers there, by the thousands. You know, the experts came up from the University of Tasmania and they found in the same layer as um, a whale fossil, a possum fossil, a marsupial fossil, like a possum. Now, my question is this, possums and whales don't live together, how are they buried together? Doesn't it speak of a global flood? 
You know, it's very interesting when you look at things like jellyfish. Jellyfish have no backbone, right? So you wouldn't expect to find any fossils if the slow and gradual model is correct. And in fact, that's what Darwin prophesied. Yes, he prophesied. He made a prediction. He said, you'll never find a holly soft organism preserved as a fossil. It can't happen. Well, even his evolutionary supporters today know that he was wrong on that score. This is Dr. James Hagedorn. He believes in evolution. He found thousands upon thousands of jellyfish fossils in a Texas quarry, in 3D, in the sandstone there. Now, how does that happen? Those of you who know how jellyfish swarm will know that you just get these thousands of jellyfish in this 3D swarm in the ocean. This has all the hallmarks of one of these swarms being overtaken by a rapid current because it was flowing rapidly, it was carrying high sediment load. And when you look at these jellyfish, they've perished as they were pumping fluid ever more heavily laden with sand. Doesn't the evidence fit the global flood? I mean, you can even see the ripple marks in the sand. How long do they last down the beach today? Um, So Darwin's idea that you can't get uh, jellyfish fossils is a myth, and the myth is... Thank you very much. Okay. Now, horseshoe crabs live today. They're alive today. Do you know they're actually referred to by the evolutionists as being living fossils? You know why? Because they shouldn't be here. (coughs) They're exactly the same as their fossil counterparts down in the layers. See, they've got this perspective that the layers represent millions of years, hence why they dub them living fossils. And I love this fossil here. Not only can you see the horseshoe crab beautifully preserved, but even its footprints trailing out behind. How long do crab footprints last down the beach today till the next wave comes in. You know, one of the resources we've got up there, maybe some of you uh, uh, saw it last year, um, is uh, a DVD called The Voyage That Shook the World. It's about Darwin. We made it for the um, anniversary year of Darwin's uh, birth and publication of Origin of Species. And look, it's not... I, I call it a bit wimpish, actually. It doesn't use the sort of language I'm using tonight. But it's proven to be quite a useful uh, first wave of evangelism tool. Because we're very gentle on the film. The, the narrator points out that Darwin, when he got to South America, found uh, a megatherium fossil. Uh, and then the uh, film pans to uh, some researchers Uh, scraping out the footprints of megatherium, which have been found today. And the film gently asks the question, wonder if Darwin would have changed his mind about how megatherium was fossilised if he could have seen the footprints of the creature had even been fossilised. Be alert when you read uh, news news items. Here's here's a news item from a couple of years ago from uh, our ABC, ABC News. It talks about dinosaur footprints having been found in uh, New Zealand. And uh, if we can have a look at a couple of the lines here. Um, Look, let's um, make the text a little bit larger so it's easier to read. The footprints were made in beach sands and were probably quickly covered and preserved by mud from subsequent tides. Now, when I see the tide coming in and going out, it wrecks footprints and so on. How does this work? And in fact, In the same article, you can spot where they contradict themselves. Just a little bit further on, again, to make this larger so we can see it 
bit more easily. This is what the researcher said. What makes this discovery special is the unique preservation of the footprints in an environment where they could have easily been destroyed by waves. What's this word? Tides or wind. Be alert. Show people how their arguments uh, are self-contradictory. Um, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan's not going to point out to people the contradiction in their own words. It's up to Christians can, to do that. Point out to them that the evidence of the fossil record fits with burial in the global flood. Fountains of the great deep breaking open. What are we going to find first off? Things buried on the seabed. It's not a coincidence. Come up a bit higher, you find the sharks, the fish, the amphibians. Yeah, the muddy floodwaters beginning to inundate the land, overtaking the reptiles next, the dinosaurs. There was no age of dinosaurs. Then finally, the mammals, the warm-blooded mammals seem to have been able to last a bit longer. But ultimately, everything that had the breath of life in its nostrils that wasn't on board the ark perished. And so there was no age of dinosaurs. And so we ought to expect that people, as they came off the ark, would have handed down stories of encountering these creatures. And indeed, that's what we find. They don't use the word dinosaur. Dinosaur is a modern word. It was coined in 1841. But uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with the word dragon. And, you know, if you go back in history and read historical accounts, you find ones like this from Ireland, 900 AD. Large beast with iron nails on its tail. When I ask kids at, at school presentations where I give this presentation, hey, what does that sound like? Back comes the answer. A stegosaur. Yeah. <coughs> Absolutely. Um, I got rebuked gently when I gave a dinosaur talk in Perth a couple of years ago by a man afterwards. He came up to me and he said, why, oh why, in your dinosaur talk, didn't you put this picture up, which you published in Creation magazine last year? Because my nephew was converted through that picture. What's this a picture? It's a picture of a brass engraving of uh, what looked like um, uh, long-necked dinosaurs, saur sauropod dinosaurs. Indeed, that's what I would say they are. Did the engraver have a copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica to engrave them? No. This is on the tomb of a bishop buried in a very old church in the UK, Carlisle Cathedral. He died 600 years ago. These engravings were made 600 years ago. I would argue they were made by someone who was still familiar with what they looked like because they were still around at the time. Encyclopedia Britannica hadn't been published yet. You know, even the, the scientists with their own eyes have seen evidence that T-Rex, for example, could not possibly have become extinct 65 million years ago. See, they've found bones of T-Rex that haven't been converted yet into uh, rock. They've taken slices of the bone. They've looked at, un at that under the microscope and they've seen red blood cells. Here's Dr. My Mary Schweitzer's own testimony as reported in Science Journal. It was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone. But of course, I couldn't believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones, after all, are 65 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? Wrong question. And that's why we publish these pictures in Creation magazine, so that Christians can get hold of this stuff and show their friends and say, hey, you say they died out 65 million years ago. How do you explain this? I've seen lots of dead kangaroos hit by semis out on the, the country roads, but a week later, they're gone. How come this was preserved so well? Just ask the question. You know, on um, the DVD, The Voyage That Shook the World, 
uh, as I said, it's very gentle, but it's a bit like uh, the other one I mentioned, From a Frog to a Prince, in that we've got 14 experts. Seven believe in creation, seven believe in evolution. And so you can sort of say to your friends, hey, get it from both sides. But, you know, we couldn't have scripted what some of the evolutionary scientists said better if we'd tried. This is... Uh, uh, Phil Curry, Professor Phil Curry, a very famous paleontologist, a world authority on dinosaur fossils. And this is what he told us. He said this, as scientists we have to be really careful because it's very easy to get locked in by your ideas or by the search image you have when you go in the field. In spite of the fact that you think you have an open mind, very often your perceptions of what things should be or your search image or your cultural beliefs in some cases will actually be working on your mind so that your eyes are open but they're not really open. They're missing something that could take you in an entirely new direction. And we see that again and again. Evolutionists have to take an entirely new direction to make sense of new evidence, evidence which contradicts their their former perspective. Let me give you an example. As we wrote up in Creation magazine uh, a few years ago, we pointed out that for years, evolutionists had told the illustrators of children's books about dinosaurs, don't you dare draw dinosaurs walking across grassland because grass didn't evolve until after the dinosaurs became extinct. Well, actually, they've discovered now that they've got a time travel problem. You see, not only did they find evidence that dinosaurs ate the, uh, walked on the grass, but even that they ate the grass. What was the evidence they found? They found fossilised dinosaur dung, which had the remains of grass in it. So obviously... The, Dinosaurs have been eating grass, and the remains of grass were so well preserved that botanists were able to identify which grass species the dinosaurs were eating. So I've got a question I'd like to ask the evolutionists. I don't see lots of dung being fossilised today. How is it that this has been fossilised so well that botanists can even identify what types of grass the dinosaurs were eating? Doesn't it speak of an unusual event? Doesn't it point to the fact that the fossil record is consistent with what you'd expect from the biblical account of history. So this claim that evolution happened in the past, just look at the fossil record, is a myth. And the myth is? Okay. There'll be, there'll be a few more examples yet where you can participate. Such a, Let's try and lift the roof off next time. Uh, look, I want to share something with you. Remember this quote of Richard Dawkins I put up before, as he says, you know, of course, evolution's been observed. It just hasn't been observed while it's happening. You know, that is a faith statement. Richard Dawkins has a faith in evolution. They don't like us saying this, but everyone believes something about origins. Everyone's got a faith. And Dawkins' faith actually matches the biblical definition of faith. Let me show you what I mean. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Dawkins hasn't seen evolution, but he sure hopes for it. Why? He doesn't want to be accountable to a God. Does his faith uh, please God? Because the Bible does say without faith it's impossible to please God. Yes, but it's got to be faith in what God has said. So, you know, he's got a faith that evolution is true, but as for me, uh, I'll choose Righteousness. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You give me a choice between millions of years and six-day creation, I'll choose righteousness 
every time. And I've, yeah, I've got a faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But mine is a rational faith. You see, we've got exactly the same evidence that the evolutionists have. We've got the same rocks. We've got the same fossils. We've got the same living creatures. And we show how the evidence fits better with the biblical account of history, not the made-up uh, evolutionary uh, storyline. And so, you know, people say to me, does it really matter what you believe about origins? <coughs> Too right it does. It absolutely affects the way you look at everything. You know, I meet some people in some churches say, oh, look, it doesn't matter, it's not important. I give credit where credit's due, though, to those churches that want to see change in our society, you know, from, you know, Jesus changing lives in society. And this is what I point out to them. I say, look, what you believe about the age of the earth, our origins, does have an impact on people's lives. What society believes about origins will impact society. I put to you this. Today, we are reaping the fruit of 50 years of evolutionary teaching in schools. See, to my astonishment, I discovered that the secular school I went to here in Adelaide, the year before I began, the, the headmaster still commenced each assembly with prayer. Well, that never happened from the time I started school, and we were just taught evolution. No mention of, of God. Now, I've, I'm going to play my ace, okay? I'm going to choose an extreme example. I do this deliberately. I could have chosen lots of ones, but this one is from uh, Finland two and a half years ago. Um, a, a young man went back to school and killed his uh, teacher and a number of the students, and then he himself was shot in, in the melee. But because of YouTube, because of videos he'd posted on YouTube, the police were able to get an insight into the mind of the killer. And we can see what he believed about origins. Life is just a coincidence, a result of long process of evolution. Religious people, your gods are nothing and exist only in your heads. That's straight out of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which has as its foundation evolutionary thinking. So, you know, we need to be aware here of who sets the rules. That, that's that's where, where this whole thing is leading. You see, what you believe about your ancestry will affect what rules you choose to live your life by. If you believe that you're a descendant of the first man, Adam, uh, then you know there are consequences. Uh, Adam, created in the image of God, created by God, uh, therefore uh, God owns us, he sets the rules. In, in fact, isn't that what the first commandment is all about? We are here for a purpose, to love and serve the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. But if we can delude ourselves into thinking that we're descended from some ape-like creature, you know, and before then from Ponska millions of years ago, then guess what? Nobody made us, nobody owns us, we can set our own rules. And we see that mindset prevailing now throughout the Western world, the thoroughly evolutionised Western world. We see it prevailing at the ballot box. If the Greens have their way, euthanasia will be made legal. Abortion, will, well, you know the story about abortion. I don't have to tell you that. Millions of people killed who had no say. They had no choice. Uh, look, I've just come back from a two-week tour in uh, New Zealand and I've got to share this joke with you because at these meetings I would talk briefly about euthanasia 
And uh, one guy came up to me afterwards and mocked my Aussie accent. Have we got any Kiwis here tonight? Okay, okay. So I've got to be careful what I say, right? Uh, and they, they made fun of my accent. But you know, one guy understood the New Zealand Australian accent. He said, I've got to tell you about one of our leading Maori exportsmen. Uh, you know, he, was, he was interviewed recently on radio. And uh, he was asked for his views on a range of political issues, including euthanasia. And he said, hey, what is, what's your view on the euthanasia problem? And he was thoughtful for a while. And then he said, I think we should raise our own boys first. Um, yeah, totally out of context. But uh, look, let's be educated. What is euthanasia? It's killing off our own, our old people. Uh, anyway, let's have, let's go back to the, the Finland shooter. It's time to put survival of the fittest back on track. Um, and even more sinisterly, I, as a natural selector, will eliminate all who I see as unfit, disgraces of human race, and failures of natural selection. He was taught the evolutionary tree of life. That's not a tree of life, that's a tree of death. And we see uh, its consequences everywhere. Um, I've given an extreme one there, but you look everywhere. What do you you see? Kids who throw the towel in at school just because they're not coming top in the subject. Whereas years ago, everyone did their best. Why? They had a biblical perspective. Where whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your whole heart. You're not an an accident We are all God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, I've done my best to try and appeal to you to make this an important issue. Um, Those of you who can afford to get Creation Magazine, I'm going to be making an appeal shortly for you to join us in this work. Those of you who already subscribe, you can... Extend your subscription. We've got a special reward for those, for all people tonight who extend or, or get a new subscription. But I need to show you, by their fruit you shall know them. Here's a testimony we got back from a young man about Creation Magazine. Firstly, I want to thank you for helping me to prove to my stubborn self that there certainly is a God. Your magazine gave me the scientific and spiritual evidence I needed to firmly assure myself my suspicions were true. At first, I shunned the belief of my parents. But after living on my own for two years, with the aid of a copy of your magazine, which I was given one day, I realized that I was the one who was wrong, and I asked for salvation. Um, The sort of stuff that influenced him in Creation Magazine, uh, data back from the NASA probe, showing that uh, Saturn's got things orbiting it that shouldn't be there if it was billions of years old, Fits fine with a 6,000-year-old solar system. Uh, layers are deposited over millions of years? No, in just one night, a night of sand pumping on the Gold Coast. A canyon, huge canyon, carved in how long? Just six days. A bit of water diverted down this laneway in America, in this irrigation area. They diverted a little bit too much water. Uh, you don't need millions of years to get rocks. Uh, here's a bag of petrified flour. Uh, a fossil hat used to be a hard hat. Soft hat, now it's a hard hat. Um, A roll of fencing wire fell off the back of a truck into an estuary. We cut it open. Guess what we found adhering to the wire in the solid rock matrix? Barnacles. You don't need millions of years to get uh, layers or canyons or rocks or fossils. Um, The age of the earth 
is a key issue. We got a testimony back from a lady in New Zealand who thanked us for putting this picture in the magazine. She'd had an unbelieving husband for 20 years, done everything she could to reach out for him, reach out to him. In fact, her own church had had a special out- outreach program with just her husband in mind. Nothing worked. But when someone put her on the creation magazine, she left some copies around the place, hoping that her husband would read them when he thought she wasn't looking, and that's indeed what happened. And she wrote to us to say, thanks for putting these stalactites and stalagmites in the mag. Two weeks after my husband saw that picture, he started coming with me to church. Three months later, he committed the rest of his life to loving and serving the Lord Jesus. The reason that had such an impact is living in New Zealand had been on cave tours where they say these things need millions of years. This clearly doesn't. It's a mining shaft dug at Mount Isa here of the miners with the lanterns on their heads for scale. You don't need millions of years. Uh, We get people sending in their holiday snaps and we'd encourage you to do that too. This particular family uh, had an eye out when they were on York Peninsula at Wool Bay for uh, fossil, um, not fossil, bullet cartridges becoming fossilised in, uh, in the rock there on the foreshore. You don't need millions of years. We get parents writing to us saying, please, our kids are being taught radioactive dating. We don't know what to do. Yeah, it's true. I was never taught radioactive dating when I went to school. They left that for uni, but they're bringing in ever, ever younger at school. So how do we deal with this claim that Radioactive dating shows rocks are millions of years old. We had to think about it to really laymanise it for the kids who read Creation magazine. And so we came up with this. We said, hey kids, we went to a volcanic lava flow because that's the sort of rock that you do radioactive dating on. And the age starts from when the rock solidifies. So we knew the actual age of this particular lava flow was 50 years. But when we send it off to the radioactive dating laboratory, they came back with an age of over a million years. So kids, if the radioactive dating technique is wrong on rocks where we know the age, why should we assume it's right on rocks where we don't know the age? And we got excited phone calls from parents saying, guess what, Um, Johnny's teacher contacted me to say, where did your son get this information from? (laughs) From Creation Magazine. So look, this idea that... uh, It's busted. I'm going to ask our volunteers if they would hand around the sign-up forms for Creation Magazine. Unlike email news, we have to ask you to pay for this one. Um, It's $28 for a one-year subscription, uh, $75 for three-year subscription, so it works out cheaper per year if you sign up for multiple years. And there's a bigger reward for those of you who do sign up for the three-year option tonight. (coughs) Sorry. The right-hand side is a detachable coupon. If you want to sign up, just detach that coupon before you hand the clipboard along the rows and stick it in your pocket and take it to our volunteers at the tables afterwards. Um, By the way, if you don't want to sign up or can't afford it, please, no pressure, just hand it along the road to the next household. But as I go around the churches, I appeal to every household, please join us in this work if you can. Read your magazine. When you're finished, donate it to the local doctor's surgery for other people to read in the the waiting room. So uh, as the volunteers hand around the uh, sign-up forms, uh, maybe I can um, talk about the free gift. Those of you who sign up for a one-year subscription... Um, four issues per year, but tonight we'll let you take home 
uh, a back issue free. So in other words, you're getting five issues for the price of four. But a better deal if you can go the whole hog and get the, uh, the three-year subscription is uh, to get a free $18 DVD. And I've already mentioned um, one of them, uh, From a Frog to a Prince. That's one of the DVDs you can get as a reward for signing up and paying for three years. Um, most of our DVDs are $18. There's just one or two there that aren't. You need to check the price tag on the back. I have to apologise. The Voyage That Shook the World is not uh, one of our $18 ones. It's more expensive. Please understand, it cost us over a million dollars to make that documentary. My understanding is we haven't yet recouped the money. The only reason we could produce it is because of donations from uh, faithful supporters who um, donated. By the way, I've got to give this testimony. In Invercargill in New Zealand... Miserable night there. They had heavy snow. Their stadium roof, their multi-million dollar stadium, had collapsed the following day. Thankfully, no one was in it at the time. And uh, we only had 20-odd people come out to the meeting in Invercargill. But one of those people came up to me afterwards. He would have been 20, 21. And he said, "Uh, I apologise for the way my behaviour beforehand. Well, I didn't see that. He said, I was standing back being very standoffish. I hadn't noticed that. He said, because I didn't believe any of this stuff. But tonight, what I've seen makes complete sense. I believe. And he had a wad of materials under his arm. And he also said this. He said, look, um, I came along here. This is my third time to come along to this place here. It was a Salvation Army uh, place, would you believe? And uh, thanks to the youth pastor. And tonight, I believe it all hangs together. But he said, look, I'm a cinematographer. I know full well how your documentary uh, blew out the budget. So if ever you're doing something like that in the future, please call on me. I'll give you my help for nothing. How's that? From unbeliever to believer and supporter in one night. Um, Lots of stuff out there. Look, I love this one, Dr. John Hartnett. Even if you don't take the plastic off, it's a powerful witness that uh, um, PhD creationists do believe the Bible. This guy is an associate professor at the University of Western Australia. He's getting awards um, for what he's doing when his secular colleagues say, John, why did you think to look for an answer to this cosmological problem in this part of the universe? And he said, hey guys, you know me, I got a head start because I know what really happened in the past. Um, So, Hubble Bubble, Big Bang in Trouble, in the beginning, bang is? Thanks very much. Lots of other stuff out there. I won't plough through it all. Uh, Those who uh, get um, Creation Magazine uh, will have already received this issue. Uh, Those of you who want to extend your subscription, there's a little box you can tick. Uh, If you've missed it, uh, our admin guys will will pick it up. But um, look, just a couple of samples of what's in the current magazine. This is the first one you'll get. Those of you who subscribe tonight, who created God? That's often an atheist objection to the Bible. But uh, anyway, it's answered there. Um, What else we got? Oh, aliens. uh, They can't be coming from elsewhere, as that article says, but uh, from this dimension. So what are they? Read the article and find out. By the way, we get many parents saying to us, should I 
insulate my kids from evolution or should I teach them? We argue you should teach them evolution warts and all so they know more than their teachers. And this is what one testimony got back. I'm a year 12 student. I've been reading creation stuff for years. It's a lot of fun. I've actually found I'm acing year 12 biology, specifically evolution, because I seem to know more about it than my teachers. Ha ha. And I'm really excited. You know, we're third and fourth generation creation mag readers. Um, we got a letter from a grandmother about her grandson, Jacob. And I really feel I, I should share this one with you. Um, the grandmother wrote to us to say that her grandson's teacher was teaching from the evolution curriculum. And Jacob raised his hand and said, I don't believe that. And the teacher said, I beg your pardon, Jacob, why not? And Jacob replied, because there was nothing but God and, and he just spoke and that's where our son came from. He's eight years old. Eight years old. Isn't that fabulous? Now, here's the bit that everyone except the teachers get surprised at. All right? So if you're a teacher, I don't think you'll be surprised by what the teacher said. But the rest of the, rest of the people here might well be surprised as I was. Here goes. You know, Jacob, you are right. I don't believe evolution either. It happened just like you said, but I'm not allowed to talk about creation as a teacher. Thank you for saying it to me, for me. And everywhere I go, everywhere I go, I have teachers coming up to me saying, Yes, we had a staff meeting. The principal read the riot act to us. We're not allowed to talk about it, except if the kids ask the questions. So let's get our kids asking the questions. Train them up with Creation Magazine. And give them the answers for the sort of questions that are likely to come back. Where did Cain get his wife? Uh, how did both saltwater and freshwater fish survive the flood? Lots of other questions like that. Basically, if you can get the Creation Magazine and this book, the Creation Answers book, I reckon you'd be 99% equipped to deal with the objections that come up. And look at these testimonies we get back from people who came along to meetings like this. After sitting on the edge of my seat with my jaw to the floor, I found the pot of gold I was sure I'd been looking for. The Creation Answers book, where Cain found his wife. How long the days in Genesis were. How will the animals fit on the ark and the elusive dinosaur question. The week I bought that book was one of the most exciting weeks of my life. What I read changed my entire perspective of Christianity. I finally realized I didn't have to abandon reason to have faith in Christ and that I could take my brain with me into church. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Don't leave it at the door. More than that, I realized that what... Come on. Thank you. More than that, I realized that what I once thought was one of the biggest stumbling blocks for any Western Christian was in fact one of the greatest witnessing tools available to our generation. That's the Creation Answers book. Lots of others there. I won't go into all the details. Uh, Alien Intrusion is a key book these days. Uh, evangelists going into the pubs are being told by people, didn't we come from aliens? Well, this book answers that. Basically, the whole alien thing has its foundation in evolutionary thinking. If life evolved on earth, then why not elsewhere too? So get this book. People have been converted by it. Um, by the way, don't let uh, the resources that you might get distract you from your daily Bible readings. It's so important to know what God said so that you can recognize when the enemy is lying. Um, I'll finish up with what is probably the biggest difficulty for evolutionists to explain, sex. 
Why do we have human male and female? As couples with infertility issues know, everything has to work to get a baby. So the human, first human male supposedly evolves. You need a human female appearing at exactly the right time. They need to be in close proximity. They need to like one another. And everything needs to work. And evolutionists themselves admit it is very hard to explain. Uh, not for me, because I believe in the biblical account of origins and God said it's not good for the man to be alone. As a married man, I can vouch for that. No wonder Adam was so joyful upon meeting his wife uh, for the first time. I well understand that. By the way, when, um, when uh, people give birth, they give birth to people, not monkeys or pigs, irrespective of what you might think when they're two years old. Uh, it's consistent with what the Bible says. All things, plants, animals, and uh, sea creatures, flying creatures, were all created according to their kind. And so that's what we see. This evolutionary tree of life, let's get rid of those um, black lines there which so deceive the eye. There we've got a diversity of living things all reproducing according to their kind, just as you'd expect. There's one more lie there. It's this supposed first living cell. Nobody knows what it's looked like. Uh, they don't, can't even imagine what it looked like. Was it more plant-like, animal-like? It's not in the fossil record. It's not anywhere today. Let's get rid of it. Ah, there we've got the facts of life. Diversity of living things reproducing according to their kind. This evolutionary tree of life is a myth, and the myth is one, two, three. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.